The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We are sitting in a room here in Salt Lake City. People on chairs in a gym. And we ask you to sing. We, we sing and then we pray and ask you to up the heavens and reveal to us Christ in all of His glory. We ask you to do something amazing to connect this particular place and this little spot on the map in our, our very, very human reality to something majestic and eternal, the glory of Christ, God the Son. We ask you to take our minds, to lift them up beyond the mundane, to see the, the eternal and the beautiful. To take our hearts and Lift them up beyond the, the ordinary fears and the temporal concerns to see and to treasure that which is marvelous and supreme. And we sing very carefully in that song, we sing to you and ask you to show us Christ because you must do it. We look to you dependent on your power for it. So we ask you to break open this passage here in front of us, this ancient word, and make it run. To by your Spirit give it power, and by your Spirit give, our, give us eyes and give us focus. The spiritual sensitivity that is beyond us to see and to treasure that which is there but often missed. Father, help us as we walk through this text this morning and use it, I pray, in, in the showing of Christ to each of us here. Would you use it to build a people individually and to build a people corporately, to build a church here that is so very different than the world and increasingly more like you. Increasingly humble increasingly gracious towards one another, increasingly unified around the gospel, increasingly walking through life as citizens worthy of that kingdom into which you have pulled us by your grace. You've transferred us from darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. You have made us citizens of the gospel. And so now make us, Lord, today a little bit more to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. We look to you for help. Do it with this passage, we pray. Open our eyes and show us Christ. Woo us, Lord. Conform us. Change us. Build a church here. And gain great honor for yourself in that, I pray. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. 
turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Last week, in looking at the first four verses of this chapter, we saw the Apostle Paul beginning to unpack this statement that he first laid out for us in, in a very important command in, in chapter 1, verse 27, that we are to now, as Christians, to walk or, or to live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel, as gospel-worthy citizens. That's what it literally says, although most of our translations talk about uh, living worthy of the gospel. He has the idea of citizenship there. We are citizens of a different kingdom now and are to walk in a manner that matches that. It lifts up Christ and that shows that all of our values and all of our desires and all of our perspective on life is defined very differently than how the rest of the world defines it, defined by what God has done in Christ to save us and what he has delivered us to, a new life. He commanded that, 127, started to talk about it, then got off on something else, and then came back to it at the beginning of chapter 2, as we saw last week, and he reminded us of that by clarifying for us the effects of the gospel, that as Christians now, that the gospel's affected us in some particular remarkable ways. We know what it is to be encouraged in Christ. We know what it is to experience the love of God. And we know what it is, if you're a Christian, to be united to God, to have a participation with the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are there. Verse, verse 1. And then we are to have this mind, a, a mind that is unified and purposeful around the gospel, loving one another. A mind that shows itself by being concerned about other people, by viewing others as more important than ourselves and viewing their concerns as what we're after. Out to meet their needs, not just our own. That all was verses 1 through 4. Have this mind, that kind of perspective. That's, that's his command there in verses 1 to 4. And now at verse 5, Paul turns our attention in our passage today, turns our attention towards Christ himself who is the perfect best model of this mind. These verses, verses 5 through 11, form the, the central piece of this whole book of Philippians. And it's lengthy, it's kind of detailed, a lot of things to consider in it, so I'm going to actually take two weeks to look at this one section, but it is all a single unit, and depending how your Bible has has done it, it might be typeset in a little different way to show that it is a unit of itself, 5 through 11, sometimes called a song or a hymn. And a bunch has been written about this section, a lot of debate, because it's so important, and scholars like to debate things that are important. And some of that debate is more interesting than other pieces of it. But in the end, really, the, the meaning is not all that complicated, not, not that hard to find. We're going to consider verses 5 through 8 this morning, and I'm going to work towards this, this main point in our passage today. Here's my main point for this morning. Citizens of the gospel are to follow in the steps of their gloriously lowly king. Citizens of the gospel, Christians, are to follow in the steps of their gloriously lowly king. That's what I'm working towards this morning in verses 5 through 8. But I'm going to read all of 5 through 11 because it is a single unit and then turn our attention to the first half of it. So this is Philippians chapter 2 beginning in verse 5. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. I can make two observations from 5-8. through 8. Here's the first one. As God, Christ Jesus made himself nothing by becoming a slave. As God, Christ Jesus made himself nothing by becoming a slave. We're going to need to to work through a a couple of details carefully to kind of draw this out from verses 6 and 7 in particular. But we begin in verse 5 with the exhortation that's a continuation on from verses 1 to 4, what he said last week. Have this mind among yourselves, beginning of verse 5. What I was just talking about, Paul's saying, he's kind of summarizing that. Have that mind, that, as I said, that's your mind. That's, that's your, your way of, of life, your perspective. This gospel-shaped unity, this considering of others of greater worth and looking out for their needs, have that mind among yourselves, just like Christ. He has it too. That's how the end of verse 5 reads literally. Your footnote may have that. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let me show you. That's the flow of the passage here. We're being commanded to do something, reiterated from verses 1 to 4, and then he's going to hold up in front of us this marvelous, perfect model. And as he holds up Christ, this model of what he wants us to be like, he means to knead that into us so that it seems so compelling and so right and so appropriate. This is what God the Son is like. That for me, that it will draw us to it. So he's commanding it, but he means to draw us also by showing us that same thing in Christ gloriously for us. Have this mind, which was also in Christ, who was and is God the Son. That's what he means when he says he was in the form of God. Jesus was in the form of God. So he's turning our attention from ourselves to Jesus. You can talk about Christ in the form of God, which can be a bit confusing. That word form, it's one of those things that's debated a lot, shows up here and in the parallel statement in verse 7, the form of a servant, form of a slave. It's used twice there, and it does not mean something like had the form of, as in looked like, but wasn't really. Seemed like, but was just pretending. It's actually much more profound than that. It is very much about reality. In fact, the NIV translates it, I think, something like true nature, genuine nature, because that's what it actually means. 
the form of something, is the true nature shown. The nature displayed. It's what you look at that tells you, oh, that's what I'm dealing with. Like we, A simple example, we might say sometimes, these previous generation used to say, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. The point being, you can identify what a duck is by its form. It walks and it quacks in a duck-like way. And that's the only thing that you can use to tell it's a duck. You can't look at, at this being without seeing its form. And the form communicates identity, walking and quacking. It's duckness. Form is the display of the reality. That's how you identify it. So for God, who is invisible and has no body, what is the form that identifies God? What does the Bible tell us? Because he has no body. He has no, no material. You can't look at him quacking. So what tells somebody who's in the presence of God, that's God. There he is. I behold the Holy One. What is it? Throughout the Bible, it's, it's immaterial. The best way to describe it is to say it is his shining glory. The thing that caused Moses' face to glow when he beheld the Lord in the tent of meeting. The shining, the, the, the emanating of glory, such that a person stands and says, surely God is in this place. Not because I can see a, a, a bodily form, but because something rests upon me, some glory, some beauty, some awe, some power, some sense of majesty that says, God. It's how the invisible manifests himself. It's complicated because it's not material. We, we often think of form and we think of material. But there is this way that God so shines, so emanates himself that Moses can, can glow, the people of God can shrink back in fear. God displays himself in shining, powerful glory. And in that was Jesus forever past. All he's meaning to say here is that Jesus is God. He's not actually teaching us about the nature of God. He's not teaching us about the nature of the Trinity. He's just saying Jesus was the shining glory of God for forever past. He was not acting as if he was God, presenting as if he was God, but before he became a man, before he took on the form of a servant, he was God Almighty. Not creature. Infinite and not finite. Divine. Not human. Full of glory. If you had been able to observe him in some way, if you yourself had been before him in his presence, what would have risen out of you would have been the Lord, the Lord, God Almighty, right here. Oh, 
And you would have, like Isaiah, fallen down before him and said, away from me, I'm an unclean man, I'm an unclean woman. That's Jesus, the Christ. And then something amazing. He did not count that divine equality something to be grasped. That equality with God is something to be clung to, which means more than just held on to so as not to be dropped, let go of. That phrase actually is a bit of a euphemism in that day. It's kind of a, of a, of a way of saying something. How we might today say something like, cashed in on. A card to be played, even when we're not talking about cards. Like I might say, I'm going to play the pastor card. I'm not talking about cards. I mean, I'm going to take advantage of my status as pastor to gain for myself some advantage, to gain some leverage, to gain some benefit that would not be mine otherwise if I wasn't pastor. I had the pastor card. And I'm going to play it. I'm going to cash it in. I'm going to take advantage of something for my own benefit. That's what that phrase means there. And Jesus said, I am not going to play the God card. I have it. I am God Almighty. It is in my hand. And I will play another one. He did not count that as something to be grasped and held onto, to take advantage of for his own advantage, though he sure could have. But instead, big change at the beginning of verse 7, but he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. It's another one of those things that's heavily debated. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Not by becoming no longer God. It's logically impossible. God can't stop being God. You follow the flow of the verse. He made himself nothing. And then the next two phrases grammatically tied to that that explain taking the form of a servant, that is a slave, being found born in the likeness of men. He made himself nothing. He didn't regard this, this divine nature as a card to be played, as, as something to be cashed in on, but instead said, I will make myself the form of a slave. I am the form of God. I will make myself the form of a slave. Such that if you were then to, to see that one, you would not cry out, the Lord, the Lord, and fall down in front of him. You would say, servant and slave, a nobody. That's what he did. Made himself. He did it to himself on purpose, intentionally. This one who forever passes in the form of God became a human, took the form of a slave. Now, I understand what Jesus did here. Jesus was not ever literally a slave of anybody. Literally, like everybody else, he was just a Jewish subject of the Roman Empire, which was not an enslaved status. What he's referring to is the fact 
that for God Almighty, this one who is in the form of God, for God Almighty, the only free being there is anywhere, He's the only one who is self-determining. For God Almighty to give up His rights to determine His own life and to garner to Himself all worship and all honor and all respect, to give all that up and set it aside and instead become subject to other controlling factors is to become a slave, to put Himself into bondage what he means here. He became a slave, a person, and even the lowliest of persons. Not just a Roman citizen, not a non-citizen of the empire, a slave. In that society, slaves were clearly the bottom of the barrel. Now, sometimes we think of slavery, we think of American slavery, and we've got to be careful. It's not quite the same as the slavery that's in America's history. But the common thing is, slaves are bottom of the barrel. Slaves are owned people who have no rights, who do not determine their own course of life, their own course of existence. They do not exist as independent, autonomous authorities. And Jesus Christ voluntarily took on that form unto himself. God Almighty became a slave. I'm preaching this passage to a church full of people. Probably 95% of us have read this. Some have memorized it. You're familiar with it. Stop and think about it for the first time again. Stop and think about this. This Jesus, this Son, is the fullness of deity. He is God. Everything that exists, He made by thought. He didn't even have to make it with his hands. He just said, and it was. Everything, things in heaven and things on earth, every angel and every demon and every grand galaxy and every planet and every star and every single person and tree and Adam, everything, he made it. It exists by His will. He sustains it in every single moment of every single day. It exists only because He made it and says it will continue to be. He is God Almighty. Such power. And such beauty because this Son, the second person of the Trinity, we talked about this some weeks past, forever past, forever past, the Father and the Son sat, if you will, opposite each other within the one single God, within the Godhead, the Trinity. 
And the Son is so beautiful that God the Father is fully delighted and fully satisfied just to look upon Him. Such beauty, such power in His omnipotent creative exercise, and such beauty in His just natural being. This is the one that the Father Himself looks upon and says, I am delighted with you. I love you. I'll do anything for you. You are marvelous. You are glorious. You are the Son. Because He's looking at Him and seeing Himself. This is God. Who said, I'm not going to play that card. I will make myself a slave to the likes of you. And me, you know. The likes of people is what I mean. If anything, anyone ever has the right to have the day go like he wants it to go, it's Jesus To be honored and esteemed and respected and worshipped and obeyed and served, it's Jesus. But instead, he subjects himself so that all of the people around him determine the course of his day. The weather, the details of his human fleshly body, all the ins and outs of world politics, the whim of his mother, the folly of his friends, the self-centeredness of his neighbors, the pride of his religious leaders and the hatred of his enemies and the deception and the sin and the general knuckleheadedness of everyone determines what happens to this one, God, the Son. He is not an independent, autonomous authority anymore. But he walks around and like a sheep, silent before his shearers, says, here, do with me as you will. That is amazing. That is amazing. That's what's held up to us and said, have that mind among yourselves. That is how we are to be. There's the command and, oh, that it would be needed into you and you would see. That is glorious and wonderful because right behind that we know why he did that. It has saving purpose right behind it. It's not, not mentioned explicitly yet. But this mindset is to be yours, Christian. One more thing we need to consider, though, that in my mind puts an additional turn on this that makes it even more compelling and even more interesting. It was the most interesting thing that I found in this passage as I looked at it. A very familiar passage, but I hadn't noticed this before. This is subtle, so you have to follow this closely, and if you have the NIV in front of you, you'll be helped. 
The NIV does a good job, New International Version does a good job of translating verse 6, who says, which says, who being in very nature God, or the footnote, being in the form of God, who being in very nature God, and the point is, it does not include the word though, or although, it's not there, it's not in the text. Other English translations include the word though to try to help us understand the great, big, massive contrast here between verses 6 and 7 with this God who became a human slave. A great, big contrast, and some translations try to put the word though in there to help us understand it, but in doing so, it confuses us on another very important point. The word though is a word of concession. We use it when we're trying to talk about something unexpected or unnatural or even improper. So we might use the word though to say, though it was July, it wasn't hot. Unexpected. We would not say, though it was December, it wasn't hot. doesn't fit there. We instead would say something like, being December wasn't hot. Because what we mean is, naturally, because it was December, being December wasn't hot. It's natural. That's expected. It's appropriate. Verse 6 in the text reads, Jesus, who being in the form of God, see where this is going? Towards something expected, something natural, who being in the form of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. That's interesting. That tells us something important about the nature of God. Get that. Let me say it again. Jesus, who being in the form of God, naturally then, of course, didn't regard this as something to be grasped and utilized for his own advantage. Naturally, of course, he did not play the God card. He's God. You've got to think about that. Because that's interesting. Doesn't God always want to be honored as God? Isn't, isn't this something that's unnatural? Oh, no, because if you start thinking about this, you realize, oh, we're not finding Jesus acting unlike God here and not playing the God card. So though, we're seeing Jesus act exactly like God. And then you get to thinking, oh, that shows up all over the place in the Bible. Think, for instance, 1 Samuel chapter 4. So I picked something that we're perhaps familiar with. Battle of Aphek. The Israelites carry out the ark of God to battle. Why? Assuming God must play the God card. 
He cannot allow himself to be defeated and and degraded and humiliated. And he says, yes, I will. Surely I am God. Surely the ark of God is the throne of the Almighty One. And I will let myself and my name be dragged through the mud and defeated. I will not play the God card. You think I should. I will not. I have a higher goal. What is it? He aims to deliver his people and gain greater honor to his name in the future. So in the short run, he will lay aside that divine power in the ark. Lay himself down. Let himself be slain and dragged off as a captive. Jesus, being just like that, Of course, of course, of course did not view his divine nature as something to be raised up and and capitalized upon for his own personal advantage, but instead said, I have something else in view. I have the redemption of my people and the even greater glory of the name. That's in my view, and I'm going to lay aside my life and go get that. Point being, why I find this so interesting, this is not just what you are supposed to do, Christian. This is not just what Jesus did. This is the nature of God. Jesus did this because it is his nature. We are to do this because we want to be and are in the process of being conformed to that nature. This is Christian character because this is the character of God. I don't know if this... To be honest, I don't know if you even care about this. This is fascinating, though. The character of God is a looking at my own rights, my own appropriate honor, and saying, yes, however, if there is something else of higher, greater, longer-lasting Good, I will lay that aside for the moment and pursue that. To get even more glory, even more honor to the name in the end. This is what Christian, this is what you are called to. Let this mind be among yourselves in you. A clear, immediate open-handed willingness to say, my rights count for nothing in the face of the deliverance of the people of God and the greater, final, lasting honor of the name of God. That's how God works. That's how God the Son worked. That's how He commands us to work. To the degree that you consider yourselves above and before others, 
And to the degree that you look first to your own interests, to that degree you are unlike God. Unlike God the Son, but like the world turned in on yourself. Write that down. To the degree that you consider yourself above and before others, to the degree that you look first to your own interests, to that degree you are unlike God, unlike God the Son, but like the world. Turned in on yourself. As God, Christ Jesus made himself nothing by making himself a slave. There's a reason for that. Gets to the second observation. Christ Jesus purposefully humbled himself in a way that knew no bounds. He purposefully humbled himself in a way that knew no bounds. So verse 8 picks up with Jesus already come to earth, already born in the likeness of men, and then says, being found in human form, which actually not the same word he's used for form twice already, but it's similar, but not the same word. Same general idea, though. Being a human now, he did something. In verse 7, he did something. He emptied himself. And in verse 8, he humbled himself. Again, he did it to himself. He's in charge of this. He was not humbled by others. He humbled himself in a way that knew no bounds. He did not only humble himself to the experience of being a human being. That itself is humbling for God Almighty. He not only subjected himself to interaction with fallen humans as a slave in their midst, He not only interacted with them, but submitted to them in their sin and in their mistakes and in their misunderstandings. He became a person. He became a person beneath them. He became a person beneath them even when they mess up deliberately or accidentally. Some of us are willing to draw the line right there. Now, if you you sin against me, then I'm out. He submitted himself to them in their sin. And more, even when his earthly friends and families did not treat him properly or wisely, even when people deliberately abused him and then deliberately sought his life and then sinfully, illegitimately, violently laid claim to it, he humbled himself to that point too to be a person, to be beneath them, to be beneath them in their error and sin, to be beneath them in their murderous intent, and to actually then give up his life, even on a cross, which is 
the cross in, in, in our parlance today, it is, it is not remotely as grotesque, as offensive as it was in that day and age in a context, particularly Philippi, a Roman colony. The cross was so, so beyond the pale. It's obviously a means of execution, and it obviously is painful. Yes. Most people died at the cross from suffocation or exposure. Oh, to have your head cut off. That'd be a good way to go. To hang on a cross for days until you can't hoist yourself up pushing on the nails. You can't breathe anymore and you suffocate to death. Or just exposed to the the beating sun without water for days on end, you finally succumb. It's indeed a painful death, but what's worse is that it's all in public in front of everybody who mocks and jeers as you cry in agony and in fear, whimpering. Most of the time, naked. It's humiliation and pain upon humiliation and pain. He submitted himself not just to become a person, not just to be beneath people, not just to be beneath them in their sin and in their folly, not just in their murderous intent to take his life, but to crucify him. He humbled himself in charge of it every step of the way. Embracing the worst and deepest of all humiliations on purpose. Purposefully. That's a really very important word in this statement. He purposefully humbled himself. He did all this for a reason. We have to consider that reason because while the focus of the passage is not on us, it is on Jesus and what Jesus went through, we have to think about it in relation to us because that's going to help us see the wonder of it. He did this on purpose. He did not set aside his right to be regarded as God because he does not want to be regarded as God. God very much wants to be regarded as God and very much is concerned about his own glory. As I already intimated, he did that because he had a view to greater glory in the future. He had a purpose in mind. He he did not simply decide trying out being a man so that he would know what it was like to be a man. He did not humble himself because, well, Humility is a good thing, and Jesus being good always does what's right, so he humbled himself. No. It's a purpose. Much bigger than that. You know what it is? Soak in it for a second. He did that for you. You're a Christian. If you're not a Christian yet, you are right at this moment a half step away from being included in this conversation. Trust Christ, surrender to Him, and then I can say, You're in this. 
If not, then right at the moment you're on the outside looking in at it. But come in. But Christian, he did this for you. To the praise of his glorious grace. Indeed, absolutely. It is redemption to the even greater honor of himself and of the name of God Almighty. For that purpose, he set aside his rights. For that purpose, he became a human being, became a slave to people, became subject to death, even death on the cursed cross. For that reason, to redeem people from the curse of the cross. He looked and said, I have a card in my hand that I could and should rightly play, but I also see down the road of history that there's a people out there to be gotten, to be redeemed, and that will only come if I lay aside this right now and take it up in the future. If I pursue my glory, my good, my joy in the good of these people, that's love, you'll recall. What we're seeing here is the love of God poured out in his willingness to set aside his right to be regarded as God for a moment. So as to get a people for himself and gain great glory for himself through that redeeming process. A lot of words there. I know a lot of words there. Catch it. That's the only reason to lay aside one's rights. That's the only reason to humble oneself in the mind of Jesus. To redeem to the glory of God. There is no purpose in humility, in right-denying living, rights-denying living, otherwise. There's no purpose in it. Redemption to the glory of God. Have that mind among yourselves, Christian. Redemption to the glory of God will lead me, think, say, redemption to the glory of God will lead me to lay aside my rights and embrace the death of everything that I live for, embrace the end of my life, Maybe that means physically, but in our day, most commonly, for most of us, most commonly today, the end of your life means the end of all your aspirations, the end of all your hopes, all your goals, your perspectives, what you live for. I will set that aside and willingly submit myself to these people, even in their folly, even when they take away from me everything that I have, if it may lead to them being redeemed and God owned and God worshipped through that. Have this mind among yourselves, Christians. Not humility for humility's sake. Humility for redemption's sake. Humility for Christ's glory's sake. This is the goal of Christ and His right setting aside in His humility-embracing life. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now the verse continues. 
picking up where we're going to go next week with his exaltation. But Christ set aside his life with a view to something. This is to be our mindset also, Christian. To set aside your life, to set aside your rights, to set aside your aspirations with a view to something. The redemption of the people of God to the glory and praise of the name of God. This is Paul's call on the church. This is what we are to be about. Are you? Do you understand this is the center of the book of Philippians? Is this the center of our church, of your life? It is most common, I, th- I think, most common for Christians to pursue a walk with Jesus for how it makes me feel and what I get out of it. Even while I think probably in this church most of us would say, that's, well, that's clearly not right. Yeah, okay. Check again. Because we still tend to do that. To pursue Christ because of something for me. And at the center of of the church, leading off, live as a citizen worthy of the gospel. Let me spend extensive time telling you what I mean by that. What I mean is lay aside you. All of your rights and even your life. That's what it means to live as a citizen of this kingdom, of the gospel. Setting aside you. Now, gloriously, it comes back around to be tremendous blessing to you, just like it did for Christ. But the pursuit of redemption of the people of God for the glory of God is His call on you. Christian, lay aside you and pursue it. So we are to be. That's what the church is to be. So are you about that? Let me pray and then ask you to spend a moment praying and reflecting. Maybe God will move you and call you to something, convict you or encourage you in something. Let me pray first. God, would you please reorder our hearts to be like your heart? ready and willing to lay aside ourselves for the sake of redemption and glory. 
Would you cause in particular people specific situations to arise even now? Over the next few moments, as, as your people sit here and think, would you cause particular situations where self really is the focus, where self's rights really are being defended, where self's hopes and aspirations are in command. Cause particular situations to arise and loosen your people's fingers. Loosen their grip on those things. Give grace so we can lay aside our rights lay aside our lives and in humility pursue redemption for your honor. This is like your heart and it is not like the heart of the world and Lord, we are still in the world and much like it. So we need your grace. Please pour it out on us. We are to be like Christ. Would you help us to see what he is like and to rejoice in it, even to weep over it when we see he is like that for us? Lord, it is easy to be distracted by the world that we live in and hard to see the glory of Christ. But as we sang and prayed at the very beginning, would you show that to us? Woo us with that, that glory that is in the Son, and move us to be like Him. Give help, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.